thanks, Josh, for the opportunity to, to come and talk with you about what is an absolutely relevant subject for our time. In fact, if there was ever a time for a message about an antidote for despair, um, it would be right now. We live in times of despair, and, and Josh has already spoken about uh, some of the things that are occurring uh, right now as we speak, uh, but also not all that long ago. And so we clearly live in times of, of despair. And the question is, how do we face those sorts of situations? In the previous job that I had, I, I worked as a, um, a consultant with the family court, and my job was to uh, provide uh, advice to family court judges about situations relating to parental separation and the impact that was having on children. And I worked in uh, this building, uh, the federal court uh, system on the corner of William and Latrobe Street, and next door to our building was a car park. And in the ten or so years that I worked with the, with the family court, there were instances when the area around the court system and the connected buildings would be shut down, and they would be shut down because somebody had suicided. We had a, a, a car park, uh, car park complex uh, next door to our building, and unfortunately, there were situations where somebody had walked to the top of that building and jumped and had died. And whenever I heard that, I would, I would often try and put myself in the, in the shoes of that person who had uh, committed such a, a devastating act. And I would imagine myself in their shoes and something of their life circumstances. And I would think of them planning what was going to happen and them coming to the building knowing exactly what they had in mind and and then taking that first step because there wasn't an elevator in that building. They had to walk up quite a number of steps to get to the very top. And I would think to myself, what would have led that person to take that first step and then that second step and that third step and fourth step and so on and so on until they got to the top of that building. And what was going through their mind as they walked from the, the top of the stairway to the, the edge of that building and as they looked over the edge and saw the considerable distance to the, to the ground, what was going on in their mind? What level of despair had so overtaken them that they felt that this was the only solution to whatever they were experiencing? And for them, as they looked down, what was going through their mind as they decided to take that final life-ending step? It's quite overwhelming to, to think of what might have been going through the mind of that person and the, the level of despair and just loss of hope that would have been in their mind. 
And so the guy who walks to the top of that parking tower and jumps. What was in the mind of that person? And so I guess the question that that faces us this morning as we look at this passage in Isaiah 40 and we think about the, 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 the heading for this passage of an antidote for despair, I guess we have to ask ourselves a question. Are we going to jump? Or are we going to turn around and walk back down those stairs to face the world? The world as we see it, the world that, that, that looks so terrible to us. Are we going to jump or are we going to walk back down that, uh, those stairs, those long stairs and face the world? And if so, how are we going to do it? Now some of us may be in that boat right now. Uh, some of us may not literally be in that same boat, but there are various levels of despair that all of us are experiencing. And so the message for today about an antidote for despair is, is very real, uh, it's very relevant, and it may in fact be your situation. So what does despair look like? What does it involve? I was, uh, I was looking for a, a, a visual to... Uh, illustrate what I thought despair might look like and uh, this poor fellow was uh, just jumped out at me as I was uh, uh, looking for some illustration. You can probably see the despair on his face. Uh, the sense of what is there in life. And in fact when we when we look at the word despair itself it, it actually comes from a, a Latin word meaning to be without hope a loss of hope. And that's what despair is. If you were to boil it down, it's, it's, it's essentially a loss of hope. It's a sense of there is nothing for me to live for. And that's why people like uh, what I was talking about before who walk up all of those stairs and get to that edge and they see no hope. They see no purpose in, in, in living anymore and they, and they jump. Because for them, there is a loss of hope. There is no hope. And so despair drives us to, to do things that we may not do otherwise. Now, I guess we are living in, in times of despair, and there are many reasons and valid reasons that we could, we could use to, to, to say, yes, this is a time of despair. Some of you might be unemployed at the moment because of the pandemic or other circumstances. And so when you look at your situation, you might think, well, what is there to, uh, to live for? What is there to, to, to drive me further in life? You know, I'm unemployed. Maybe some of you are experiencing some overwhelming mental health issues. Maybe you're at school and uh and the thought of not being able to see your friends at at, at school or, or not not being able to go to school at all is is just a um just a sense of despair i've got to spend another day um homeschooling and and what's the prospect uh, josh mentioned the situation in afghanistan and boy you 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 don't have to look very far to be full of despair as you think of that situation. Some of you may have um, 
seen the picture of, of the person who fell from the plane, who clung to the plane as it took off and then fell from the plane. Incredible reasons for despair. Maybe it's it's just the whole, the whole COVID thing and you can't see a light at the end of the tunnel. Uh, maybe it's some trauma that you're going through at the moment, some personal trauma. Maybe it's the prospect of retiring and uh, you've come to the end of your working life and you don't see any real hope or, or, or reason for the living anymore. And so you're full of despair about that. Maybe it's just that life just seems, I, I, I just need help and I don't know where to find it. Or maybe you're, you're facing the experience of having to plan for later periods of life and the, the prospect of moving out of your home and having to move into different life uh, and living situations. And so we could very easily look at what is happening around us and say, well, hang on a minute, Neville, there are very real, valid reasons why I should be despairing. The world is in a lousy place at the moment. But can I just say respectfully, and, and I, I need to be very mindful about how I say this, um, despair is not new. Uh, it has followed God's people throughout the ages. And there have been many instances of, of despair uh, overtaking this world and overtaking God's people. It's not the first time our God has called upon his people to deal with apparent overwhelming despair and loss of hope. You think of the Jews when they were in slavery in Egypt. Put yourself in their shoes. And what hope and sense of of of, of the future uh, would have been in their mind? You think of, again, the Jews when, when uh, the... Uh, the nation of Israel was overtaken by the Babylonians and they were taken into captivity when Jerusalem was destroyed. What would have been in their mind as they contemplated that situation? For the early Christians who were persecuted by Nero and others, uh, their sense of despair of what does all this mean and, and what um, what hope is there? During the Reformation period, when, when Christians were persecuted for, for holding on to biblical truths, and uh, many of uh, many of those uh, those Christians during that period were were put to death or put in, into jail. You think of the two world wars, and particularly the Second World War, where there was incredible destruction of property and the enormous loss of life that occurred. The Great Depression in the 1930s, where a third of employable people were unemployed and such social dislocation and economic destitution. You think of 9-11. I mean, we could go on. Um, what happened in 9-11 and the, and, the, and the bombing of the towers in America and the despair that overcame the world during that period. The current anti-Christian movements that are going on that, that leads many of us in the Christian world to wonder what the future lies for us in our faith. And again, as I mentioned before, the current world events, including Afghanistan. So how are we to respond 
So despair is not just an issue for today, even though many would think that uh, what we are experiencing today is is really the, uh, you know, it's new. It's it's, but it's despair has never been new, and God has always um, called upon His people to face times of despair and loss of hope. So what's the answer? Well, sometimes uh, when this whole issue of despair uh, is raised, particularly in the, in the area of the Christian world, uh, sometimes uh, the, the concept of dealing with despair is often viewed as a, a bit of a competition between self-effort and faith. But somehow uh, if we if we respond with faith, then... You know, we're, we're really throwing out all the, um, the good things about, uh, uh, about self-effort and, and, uh, the need to do things ourselves. We're throwing all of those things out the window. Or alternatively, if we focus on, on, uh, uh, self-help strategies or something like that, then we are, um, you know, we're, we're throwing faith out the window. But is it, is it a matter of us being in a competition between self-effort and faith. Can I just say that that, um, despair is real? And the cohorts of despair are often seen in in such things as heightened anxiety and depression. Anxiety is real, we know that. Uh, we, We know that it has a physical impact on somebody. We know that it has a psychological and behavioral impact on on people. We know that depression is real. Uh, and we know that uh, that impacts how we behave, how we think, how we feel, and even physically how we operate. And there are many helpful strategies that people can use in, in uh, combating their sense of uh, heightened anxiety or depression or just overwhelming despair. Um, I worked as a counsellor for abused children uh, with a, a secular agency, and, and I know from from my own experience, that uh, uh, there are family therapy techniques and there are counselling t- techniques that are of great benefit to uh, to people. So there are a range of, of things out there that come under the umbrella, if you like, of uh, self-effort that um, are very, very helpful and, and we should be encouraging people to, uh, to use those. Uh, sometimes there's a need for medication. But what we have in this passage that we'll be looking looking at uh, this morning is an alternative that Isaiah suggests. And so he suggests a faith response, a, a faith response and antidote to the concept of despair. Something that uh, results in that, in that poor guy with his head in his hands uh, looking very, very differently or that, that young woman with her head covered with her hands, uh, having a a completely different response. And so that's why this subject becomes incredibly important and and what Isaiah has to say about a faith response and an antidote to despair becomes so incredibly important. So I'd encourage you to uh, open your your Bibles and uh, we're going to be looking at this passage in a bit of detail. But just to provide a bit of context, which you've you've been looking at over the last few weeks, in uh, Isaiah 39, verses 5 to 8, um, uh, we have there uh, 
what is recounted to, to King Hezekiah, that uh, there was a warning of impending disaster um, that had come to him. But then in, in chapter 40 and verses 1 to 11, uh, which is the immediate background to what we're looking at today, there is a, a distinct change of focus where um, Isaiah says, uh, and, and he recounts what God has to say to them. He says, comfort, comfort my people, says your God. And then in verses 1 to 11, we have an, a series of promises that God makes to his people. He tells them that their their hard service has been completed, that their sin has been paid for, that the rough ground shall become level, the glory of the Lord will be revealed, and that the word of uh, their God will endure forever. And they are encouraged to, to see that here is their God and that the sovereign Lord uh, comes with power and that he rules with a mighty arm and that he rewards uh, those and then there's that lovely finish to it, that he tends his flock like a shepherd. And they're wonderful promises, aren't they? Uh, but can God deliver on what he has promised? You know, anyone can make a promise, but God is different. And I hope that there are no used cars salesmen out, out in the, uh, the audience today in the congregation, but God is not like the proverbial used car salesman because... All that he promises, he can deliver. The used car salesman may may make a lot of promises, but there's no performance. But when we're dealing with our God, as we shall see, um, God is full of promises, but he's also full of performance. So let's look at the passage this morning. There's an interesting breakdown to to, to what uh, Isaiah has to tell us, and it breaks down into four clear movements. In verses 12 to 14, the theme there is about how uh, our God is unique. And then in verses 15 to 17, he, he talks about, in comparison, how man is nothing. And then in verses 18 to 26, he comes back and he says, God stands alone and is incomparable. And then finally, in verses 27 to 31, he says, look, look at your God compare, and then stop despairing. So let's have a look at this in a bit more detail. One of the key uh, passages in in that first section of verses 12 to 14 uh, is where uh, Isaiah says, Who has understood the mind of the Lord? Who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand or with the breadth of his hand marked off the heavens? Who has held the dust of the earth in a basket? Who can fathom the spirit of the Lord or instruct the Lord as his counsellor? Whom did the Lord consult to enlighten him? And who taught him the right way? Um, who was it that taught him knowledge or showed him the path of understanding? And so in this in this section of Isaiah 40, uh, Isaiah is, is seeking to establish that God stands alone. He is unique. Um, there is no one who can compare with him. You know, it's interesting uh, what Isaiah does here because he does what uh, what God Himself uh, does with with Job. If you read the book of Job uh, towards the end of the book, after um, after Job has received 
sort of helpful but mostly unhelpful advice from all of his friends. And he's left at a point where he doesn't have an answer to to the dilemma that he's experienced with his suffering. He doesn't know why these things are happening to him. He, he's in despair because of it, even though he's clinging on uh, uh, like grim death, if you like, um, to, to what he understands about his relationship with God. He's still in despair. And then in the final three or four uh, chapters of the book of Job, uh, God confronts him. And uh, it's a, a very similar argument. God God says to him, you know, who knows all the things like I do? And who can do all the things that I can do? Um, and so he presents to Job uh, how he stands out, how he is unique, that he knows all and can do all. And so we see this similar argument being presented to, to the readers of Isaiah. And so uh, there is this very similar approach. And then in verses 15 to 17, um, he highlights how in comparison, man is nothing. And so in verse 15, it says, surely the nations are like a drop in the bucket. And it's moving from who God is and how God is unique and stands alone and, and knows all things and has done all things. And yet in comparison, uh, man is nothing. Surely the, the nations are like a drop in the bucket. They are regarded as dust on the scales. Lebanon is not sufficient for altar fires. I mean, Lebanon was the place where where all the timber was. And so Lebanon would not be sufficient to, to fuel all of the altar fires, nor its animals enough for burnt offerings. Before him, all the nations are as nothing. They are regarded by him as nothing and less than nothing. And so in this, in, in this short, uh, uh, three verses, uh, in comparison to, to, to God who is unique and stands alone, man in comparison is nothing. And then in verses 18 to 26, uh, it starts off with this great statement, with whom then will you compare God? To what image will you liken him? And, and there's a whole lot of, uh, rhetorical questions that, uh, that, uh, God, uh, God puts to his people through the, the prophet of, uh, prophet Isaiah. And what is being established here is that God is real. God is, is not a construction of man. There were many other religions around that constructed idols that were supposed to represent who, who their God was. And they were simply uh, constructions of the human think, uh, thought pattern. But here Isaiah says God is real. He's not a construction of man. He's not dependent on man's way of thinking. He stands alone and, and is incomparable. And so what Isaiah is putting across here is that we are dealing with a God of power who stands alone and is not simply a product of the thinking of man. And then in verses 27 to 31, which is sort of the crowning glory to, uh, to, to Isaiah's argument. He says, look, compare and stop despairing. And so in verse 27, it reads, why do you complain, Jacob? Now Isaiah says that because of what he has already mentioned about, about God being unique, man in comparison being nothing and how God stands alone and is, and is incomparable and he, and he almost is, is, is saying, well, hang on a minute. 
Jacob, Israel, the nation, on the basis of all I've just told you about God, why do you complain? Why do you say, Israel, my way is hidden from the Lord, my cause is disregarded by my God? Do you not know, have you not heard, the Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He will not grow tired or weary. And his understanding no one can fathom. He gives strength to the weary and increases the power of the weak. Even youths grow tired and weary. And young men stumble and fall. But those who hope in the Lord will renew their strength. They will soar on wings like eagles. They will run and not grow weary. And they will walk and not be faint. And so here we have uh, this, this presentation that Isaiah brings at the, at the climax. Um, he's, uh, he's saying, why are you complaining? Why are you saying that God doesn't know my situation? Um, why are you saying that when I've just told you that, that, that God knows all and does all and uh, he is not the construction of man's understanding? Why are you saying that God doesn't know my situation and why why are you saying that God can't do anything about it in light of what I've just told you and so he he confronts the nation and he says why do you complain why do you say my way is hidden from the Lord my cause is disregarded by my God one of the the things that I find interesting about this this crowning part of Isaiah's argument is that Isaiah doesn't say that God will end the source of despair for his people. He doesn't say that. He doesn't say, well, you know, God is going to come uh, come along and um, end uh, what is causing you despair at the moment. He doesn't say that at all. But what he does say is that God is going to give strength to you in order for you to endure it. I don't like suffering. Uh, I try and avoid it as much as possible. I try and avoid situations that are going to uh, cause me distress and despair. But the, the, the reality is that we can't escape those sorts of situations. But we tend to look for an end. We, we, we tend to look for an end to, to whatever is causing us, uh, to, to be highly anxious or even to feel depressed. But that's not the way that God does things. Uh, we look for an end, but God wants us to know a way through that experience. It's interesting to, to contemplate how, how God God's people have responded to despair. Um, you know, it's, easy, it's easier said than done. Often we look at a passage like this and we think, well, that's lovely, but how does it actually work? How can I grab hold of that and apply it to, to my own experience? And so how have some of God's people responded to despair? A um, little while ago, I was reading a, a, a book called Seeking Allah, Finding Jesus, and it was written by a man uh, called Nabil uh, Kuresh. I, I think that's how you pronounce it. 
it's uh, I would highly recommend the book to you. This is a story of a man who was deeply entrenched in Islam, and he is confronted about uh, uh, about what he believes, and he goes through a, a long process over a number of years of of looking at what the Christian faith is about and whether there is a basis for it, and then applying the same uh, criteria for looking at his own belief system. And he finally comes to a point where he accepts Jesus as his Lord. But he knows what that will involve in terms of his, um, his, his whole lifestyle and particularly his relationship with his, with his family. And so he comes to the point where um, his family finds out and they are absolutely devastated. Now this was a man who had a wonderful relationship with his mum and dad uh, and it was uh, quite beautiful to, to, to read about that relationship but here um, he is confronted with a situation where his mum and dad find out that he's a Christian and they are devastated and so he says this and this is him talking with God he says why didn't you kill me? I pleaded with God, full of despair, because it was too late. It would have been better if you had killed me the moment I believed so my family would never have had to taste betrayal. And you can sort of feel the anger in him to some degree as he has this conversation with God. Why didn't you just kill me? This is far worse for me than my death would have been. At least our love would have lived on. At least our family would have always been one. Why God? And I guess that that's the question that, that often occurs when we are dealing with despair. Why God? Why are you taking me through this thing? Why didn't you just kill me? Nabil says. And then he goes on and he says this, at that moment, the most agonising moment of my life, something happened that was beyond my theology and imagination as if God picked up a megaphone and spoke through my conscience, I heard these words resonate through my very being, because this is not about you. That's the message that he heard from God. Not that he was, uh, that the end to his despair would, would, would occur and that suddenly his family would accept him. But something else was happening here. And then I, I love this phrase that he, uh, Nabil uses. He says, as he heard that message from God, he, he, he said, he was rebooting me. He was, he was doing something in my life to make me think differently about what I was going through. Now his parents never became Christians as I understand it. Um, and uh, there are a lot of difficult situations that he went through, but it's interesting how how he responded uh, to that despair that he that was going on in his life that got he, he came to a realization that that there was something else going on. When you look at the, the story of Job, as I mentioned before, how did Job respond? Well God confronted him. He confronted him in a very challenging way where where he said, you know, Job, do you know everything? Can you do everything? Well, if you can't, and I know you can't, then you've, you've just got to trust me. 
in this circumstance. And we read how Job responded to that where he he repented in dust and ashes. And he came to a, a, a stronger realisation of who God was because of things that God had confronted him about that are very similar to, to what we have in this passage in Isaiah. And then we look at the story of Elijah, a man who had had that great victory over the prophets of Baal, and then he falls into despair and and he just wanted to die. He literally wanted to die. And God meets him. And we have that wonderful uh, passage in 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 First uh, uh, Kings chapter eighteen and, and and chapter nineteen, where God deals with him. And so, these were times of despair that Nabil and Job and Elijah uh, went through. Uh, and the answer to them was that they found a different understanding of God. And they, they, they found a need to, 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 to trust him in those circumstances. And so when we look at this passage in Isaiah, there are a number of um, things that uh, we need to, to, to focus on. And in this passage, Isaiah gives a whole range of reasons why we can trust in God himself. He talks about God being incomparable how we can't rely upon what man uh, does. We can't compete with God. That God is real. Uh, God is not an attempt by man to construct a God. Uh, those attempts are false and inadequate. That God is in control of all circumstances. That God holds all things together. And more importantly, he understands our circumstances and our troubles. And he never rests from doing so. In fact, he, he, he said, he says that, uh, to, to the people. You know, I'm never going to, to, to rest from understanding your circumstances and troubles. And we can trust him because he is the provider of real strength and understanding. And that he wants us to hope and to trust in him. So I guess, how does this work? How does this work in real life? I think the key for, for me is, is that is that passage where uh, Isaiah says, Why do you say, O Jacob, and complain, O Israel? My way is hidden from the Lord. My cause is disregarded by my God. Do you not know? Have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God. And so he goes on. And so the, the, the challenge that Isaiah would throw out to us is, should we be despairing in the face of who God is and what he offers us? Um, it's very easy to despair. But in the face of who God is and his relationship with us and what he offers us in the face of that despair, should we be, be despairing and with the greatest respect, Isaiah would say and say quite emphatically, no, we shouldn't despair because we have a God who is real. We have a God who understands our circumstances. We have a God who can do all things and who offers us strength and hope in the midst of our despair. 
So if we were to sort of sum up a, um, how we can apply all this, you know, our God, first of all, is expert in comforting and supporting his people. We can look down through not only the historical records in the Old and the New Testament, but the look at the testimony of people down through the ages. God has been in the business of comforting and supporting his people. And he continues to be expert in that. You know, self-reflection and self-determination can be very helpful in dealing with despair. And there's a lot of things that we can be doing to to help our situation. And, and if we need a particular uh, medical or psychological uh, assistance, then we need to explore those. The alternative of, of looking to the character of God and considering ourselves um, in relation to that and then hoping in him is a more complete response that uh, God wants us to take on board. And hoping in, in, in God transforms us because it makes us see beyond our own limited resources, and that's what Nabil experienced. Uh, and that's what uh, Job and, and also um, Isaiah, um, yeah, uh, other people have experienced. It's not a nebulous copy-out. Sometimes we, we see that, oh, you know, we, we're trusting in God, but it's sort of seen as a bit of a, a Christian cliche that we, we, um, we just, it's a bit of a cop-out. But in fact, um, hoping in the Lord requires us to make a cognitive and emotional commitment to trust in him and his promises. It is not an easy thing to do. And so it's not this cop-out, but it's us saying to look, to the Lord, I know who you are, I know what you promise, I know what you offer me, and I am going to trust you in those circumstances. And the thing is that hope without a firm basis for having that hope is no real hope at all. But in contrast, Isaiah in this passage offers us a hope that has a firm foundation. And the thing too is like uh, Job and Elijah, our despair and confusion may never receive a definitive answer from God. Job never got an answer from God about why he had suffered so much. Uh, And Elijah was never really given a reason why he had come to a point where he he just wanted uh, to die. And so our despair and confusion may never receive a definitive answer from God. But understanding that he is in control and that he knows all things forms a better basis for hope to occur in our lives. And so what's the antidote for despair? Well, it's actually self and God working together. It's not a a self versus faith. It's self and God working together because it involves hoping in the Lord and trusting in the one who is trustworthy. And that is the basis for hope. That is the basis for an antidote for despair. And so I can be at peace and have hope because I know I'm in the hands of a God who is my heavenly father and whom I can trust to do what is best in whatever circumstances I'm facing. And so if you are literally or metaphorically like that person that I spoke to at the very beginning of coming to that car park tower and you're walking up those steps 
and you're feeling as if you have no hope, that there is no future. And you're continuing to walk up those stairs and walking to that edge and you are on the verge of jumping. Again, there may be some of you in the congregation this morning who may be literally at that point. Or it may be that you just are in that position where you you see no hope. Well, Isaiah says to you, turn around and walk back down those stairs and face what you have to face in your experience because you have a God who is real. You have a God who knows your circumstances. You have a God who offers to you strength. And hope. And as Isaiah says, that those who hope in the Lord will renew their strength. They will soar on wings like eagles. They will run and not grow weary. They will walk and not be faint. They will have hope. I pray that that, that this has been a message that meets you uh, in whatever your circumstance is. If you need some help though, in applying this to your life, then I'd encourage you to contact Josh uh, and he will be able to uh, pray with you and to, to help you to better understand how this passage in Isaiah can apply to you and how you can come into a relationship with God who offers you hope um, as you trust in him. I'm just going to pray and then we're going to finish off. Father, we we thank you that you offer a relationship with you. We thank you that you are the God of all hope. And we thank you that you are incomparable and that you are real, that you are not a construct, a construction of our own thinking, that you stand alone and you offer us hope and you give us hope. And so we don't need to despair We don't need to be the one who jumps. We can walk back down those stairs and face life because we have you and we praise you for that and we thank you and we do this in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless everyone.